Welcome to NACE Clinical Highlights. I'm Dr. Greg Sherman, Chief Medical Officer for NACE. Joining me today for a discussion on the role of primary care clinicians in the management of pulmonary arterial hypertension, PAH, is Stacy Mandras. Stacy is a transplant cardiologist at the Advent Health Transplant Institute and director of the Pulmonary Hypertension Program at Advent Health Medical in Orlando, Florida. I'm really looking forward to spending a few minutes with Stacy to hear her insights into PAH therapy and how specifically our primary care clinicians can not only heighten their index of suspicion for PH in light of the many other respiratory conditions that may be included in, dif in a differential diagnosis, but also how to recognize the critical role played in the ongoing care of these patients as well. So welcome, Stacy. Thanks so much for having me, Greg. I'm glad you could be here as well. Stacy. you know as well as anybody that the early identification of patients at risk for PH is critically important, specifically given the poor prognosis of those patients that go undiagnosed. As I understand that patients may see two or more physicians before the diagnosis has been confirmed, and that's really problematic. So I was hoping to start off our discussion today by having you briefly remind us about the symptoms associated with PH that might trigger our clinicians that are listening to this program to suspect this disease, and subsequently, what do they do once they have the suspicion to make the diagnosis? What, what's a typical diagnostic routine they should pursue? Very good. So the most common symptom that patients who have pulmonary arterial hypertension present with, particularly early on in the disease process, is shortness of breath. It may start subtly. It may be that they have to really exert themselves before they notice it. But as the disease progresses, it takes less and less activity for them to become short of breath to the point where they may be short of breath with minimal activity or, or even at rest. As the disease progresses, the shortness of breath is associated with chest discomfort or palpitations or lightheadedness. They start to develop swelling in the legs or in the belly. And as the disease gets into the later stages, they may even experience syncope on exertion, which is quite worrisome. In spite of everything that we know about PAH and it heightened, increased heightened awareness in looking for the disease process, the average time between symptom onset and presentation diagnosis may still be two and a half years, which is really concerning. As you said, this is a progressive disease. This is a disease with very high morbidity and mortality with average survival untreated of two and a half years. And so it's really important that primary care providers have an index of suspicion that they're looking for it so that if a patient presents with some of these more subtle symptoms, the appropriate testing gets done so that a diagnosis can get made and treatment can be initiated according to our guidelines. Stacy, let me just jump in for a second because I think that point that you make is so critical. Two and a half years to potentially get a diagnosis and in the absence of treatment, two and a half years till they succumb to this illness untreated. And I think that's staggering and should certainly reinforce to our colleagues the importance of, of getting these patients recognized. Recognized and referred quickly. So let's say we, we recognize it. Tell us how we go about making the appropriate evaluation. 
So the easiest screening test for PAH would be an echocardiogram. And the echo is very good for suggesting whether or not the diagnosis is present, but it's not perfect. The sensitivity of echo for diagnosing pH is about 80%. And there are other clues beyond just the estimation of the pulmonary artery pressure that might be a tip-off that, hmm, maybe this is a patient that I should send to my pulmonary hypertension specialist for further evaluation. If you see right ventricular enlargement, a reduction in right ventricular systolic function, if you see a pericardial effusion, these are things that should be concerning to you and warrant a more uh, urgent consultation with a PAH specialist. And then once the echo is completed and the suspicion is there, we will follow with the confirmatory right heart catheterization, which allows us to measure the pulmonary artery pressures, measure right and left-sided filling pressures, and estimate cardiac output, as well as uh, response to pulmonary vasodilator challenge. And this will help guide our treatment. If you have a patient who meets the diagnostic criteria for PAH, we do like to confirm that there aren't any other types of disease processes that are contributing to the pulmonary hypertension, for example, parenchymal lung disease. And so each patient would also have a high-resolution CT of the chest, a VQ scan to rule out chronic thromboembolic disease, lung function tests to, again, look for underlying lung disease, both obstructive and restrictive lung disease. And as well, these patients will have a slew of labs done to look for connective tissue disease, measure BNP. If you have a suspicion for it, we would get an HIV test. Um, And lastly, every patient should have an overnight oximetry study or a polysomnogram. Fascinating. That's great information. Are there any particular patients do you think that we should be monitoring proactively in the absence of symptoms to say, you're at high risk, I recognize it, and we should be monitoring you without any symptoms? Give us some clues there. That's a really good question, Greg, and I think it's really important because there are specific patient populations that are at increased risk that need serial screening. The one that comes to mind first and foremost are patients who have connective tissue disease, particularly patients who have systemic sclerosis or scleroderma. Up to a third of patients in the course of their lifetime with systemic sclerosis will develop pulmonary hypertension, and it very well may be their PAH that kills them. Other patients who are at risk would be patients who have uh, HIV, patients who have cirrhosis, patients who have a family history of pulmonary hypertension, or family members who died at a young age with shortness of breath who we may not know what they died from. They weren't screening. Morbidly obese patients, patients with obstructive sleep apnea, patients who live at high altitude are also at risk. People who have been exposed to medicines like fenfen and orexigens or methamphetamines are also at increased risk and warrant screening. Other conditions that cause pulmonary hypertension but not necessarily pulmonary arterial hypertension would be anyone with left-sided heart disease, the patient who has systolic or diastolic heart failure or valvular heart disease, or the patient with underlying lung disease, whether it's pulmonary fibrosis or COPD 
What's important to know about the last two groups of patients, those with underlying heart disease and underlying lung disease, is that yes, they may have elevated pulmonary pressures, but to date, our current treatment guidelines do not recommend the use of pulmonary vasodilators in this population, but rather recommend that we treat their underlying conditions. So that's really helpful. But in these patients who we have an index of suspicion but have not been diagnosed, what's the frequency of echocardiogram that we should uh, carry out in our practices? So I would suggest, for example, the patient who has connective tissue disease probably warrants getting an echo once a year. Now, let's say you've done an echo once a year for several years in a row and the echo remains unchanged. Then it's reasonable to space it out a little bit further, maybe every other year, every two to three years, unless you see a clinical change where they're becoming short of breath, which is new, or they're starting to develop swelling, which was new. And in that situation, it's reasonable to go ahead and and schedule a repeat echo sooner. I want to let our listeners know that you can access an enduring online CME activity on the management of pulmonary arterial hypertension at our website, naceonline.com, and learn more about what Stacy and I are discussing today. You can access this and many other programs we have developed on other topics as well. You can register for one or more of the live conferences we produce every year. If you're on Facebook, please like us and we'll be able to share more educational content and information with you. So Stacy, I'd like to move on to what to do with these patients once we've found them. And unquestionably, the last 20 years have seen a really tremendous advance in the management of PAH with a, a multitude of new therapies with significant impact on outcomes. And I think many of our colleagues may not be really aware of all those things. So maybe you could provide a brief overview of really the efficacy and key therapeutic classes for PAH so that people could be more aware of what what their patients may be getting. Very good, Greg. So the first drug that was approved for the treatment of PAH by the FDA was epoprostenol back in 1995. And as you said, since then, we have the approval of over a dozen different treatment options. And they range from oral medications to inhaled medications to, for our sickest patients, continuous infusions either subcutaneously under the skin or through an indwelling catheter, an IV infusion of parental prostacyclins. The oral drugs include three different classes, the endothelin receptor antagonists, which are bosentan, ambrosentan, and masitentan, the phosphodiesterase inhibitors, sildenafil and tadalafil, and the guanolate cyclase stimulator, riosiguat. In addition, the prostacyclins do come in an oral form. Oral triprostanil was approved in the last couple of years. And in addition, there is an oral agent, selexipeg, which is a prostacyclin agonist, which activates the prostacyclin receptor. All of these drugs have been shown in clinical studies to improve six-minute walk, improve functional capacity, delay disease progression. To date, the only drug in a clinical trial which has been shown to improve survival is the first drug approved, IV epoprostenol. But that said, anecdotally, whether the patient is treated with IV epoprostenol or IV traprostenol, I have seen similar outcomes in my clinical practice in terms of the delayment in disease progression and 
um, reduction in hospitalization, improvement in hemodynamics, and an improvement in how far patients can walk and how much they can do before they become short of breath. There are patients that were started on IV epoprostenol back in the late 1990s who truly should have died from their disease in anywhere from six months to two, two and a half years. And some of these patients are still alive today thanks to the fact that they were diagnosed and started on these treatments. They, they do work well. They are associated with side effects and particularly with the continuous infusions. It is a very big change in lifestyle for these patients. But I would argue that the benefits far outweigh the inconvenience of having to wear a pump or deal with the subcutaneous infusion or an indwelling catheter. So you mentioned side effects. I think that's a great segue because the thing that's always on my mind with complex patients like this is as a primary care physician, what is the real role you see for our colleagues in the primary care community that are listening to us in terms of how they co-manage these patients once they've done a great job of finding them? What is the role you want them to play? So patients will often see you as the primary provider a lot more frequently than they're able to get to us. A lot of these patients travel from very far away to get to the specialty pulmonary hypertension center. And we really do rely on their primary care providers to be our eyes and ears in between visits with us. And so screening for side effects at visits is very helpful to us. All of the pulmonary vasodilators dilate blood vessels everywhere. And so patients may get headache. They may have nasal congestion. They may have flushing. You may find on visits after they've been started on these treatments that perhaps they're hypotensive and they might be lightheaded in the setting of their hypotension. And if that is the case, it warrants taking a look at the other medications that they're on. Perhaps they were on blood pressure for systemic hypertension before we started them on our drugs. And perhaps that medication needs to be reduced or even stopped. In addition, the patient will be on diuretics. It's worth considering perhaps this patient is now over-diuresed and maybe we need to cut the dose or stop the, the diuretic as well. Other side effects that are not uncommon include nausea, vomiting, diarrhea. If these patients are having these side effects, it's important that we get on top of them. We like to be proactive and give patients prescriptions for nausea medications or antidiarrheals even before we start the medication so that their treatment is not interrupted. The last thing we want is for a patient to not take their medication between visits because they're having side effects. And then we find out three or four months later when they come for their follow-up visit. It's very helpful for us if we know what's going on so that we can address the side effects so that their treatment isn't interrupted. Do you have a particular favorite anti-nausea agent that you use with your patients? I think that the most common one that we use is ondansetron. However, promethazine is also used quite a good bit. Um, Prochlorpromazine is also useful. A small number of patients will wind up taking metoclopramide if the others don't work. We ask them to take their medication with food because that certainly helps with the nausea. Sometimes they also need to be on an acid suppressant like ranitidine um, as, or, or um, pantoprazole as some of the medications can also exacerbate gastroesophageal reflux, particularly Rio Ciguat. It's another one where I, I am very um, 
emphatic in telling them to make sure that they eat before they take their medication because it, it truly does help cut back on GERD and on nausea when they take their pills. So with all these advances in therapies and options available, are, are we able to guide our patients or, or educate them that they might actually be able to come off some of these medications one day that maybe their heart function will improve or should they just anticipate they're going to be on the same regimen forever and, and that's what they should expect? So I try to coach patients to expect the worst, meaning that these will be lifelong medications. There are rare examples in which we catch a patient early in the disease process. They respond beautifully. They meet all of my treatment goals in terms of improvement in their six-minute walk, which we do every visit, improvement in the appearance of their right heart on echo, improvement in their hemodynamics, improvement in their functional class. Occasionally, I'll have a patient who meets all of those goals, and if they were on IV or subcutaneous therapy, I can transition them over to a full oral regimen. It's very unusual that they come off treatment altogether. And, and so I, I, I do try to tell patients, while it is possible, it is the exception, not the rule. And we like to be open with patients about their risk their prognosis. If we have patients who have more advanced disease, usually at the time that I'm considering putting them on IV or subcutaneous therapy, it's at that time that I also will refer them both to palliative care and also to lung transplant. If it's a patient who is young enough and does not have any other contraindications to lung transplant. My feeling is if we refer them to lung transplantation early and they respond to therapy, well, that's great. They've met lung transplant and lung transplant can follow them over time so that if their disease progresses and they get to the point where they need to be evaluated and listed, the lung transplant team already knows them. It's, I think it's better to be prepared and not need them than to have a patient get to be too sick and then no longer be a candidate because they're beyond um, helping them with transplant. And I think the same thing goes to palliative care. This is a progressive disease. It is a emotionally draining disease. It's very hard for these patients to take these medications, to deal with the side effects, to deal with carrying a pump, to live with the idea that they have a progressive condition that even with therapy may for them portend a very poor prognosis. And I think involving, involving palliative care early to help the patient address what their goals are to talk to their family about their disease process, to help focus with symptom management. I think that it's something that a lot of physicians are not good at doing, but I think it's something that we owe to our patients. Stacy, I've heard a lot of talks on pH, and that was probably the best summary of the data and, and the passion to, that you have to address these patients, I think was fabulous. So thank you so much for sharing that. I think it really goes to reinforce to our colleagues that are listening the critical importance to find these patients. They are in our practice. You may not have a lot of patients diagnosed with pH, but they're out there and we're going to see them. And the best we can do is find them and get them into the right hands. Stacey, thank you so much for, for your time spent with us today. Thank you again, Greg. I think this is so important getting the word out to primary care providers so that, you know, at, at least they're looking for it. You may not find it often, but when you do find it, 
you have the potential to incredibly change the course of someone's life for the better. I'd rather meet someone early in the disease process, even if their pulmonary hypertension is mild, and establish a relationship with them over time. Because we know that making the diagnosis early and following these patients looking for disease progression will improve their long-term survival and not just mortality, but morbidity as well. Thank you so much, Stacey. Thank you. I I really feel that physician education has been a big barrier in referral for PH, and so I'm really happy to be a part of this. If you're interested in learning more about PAH, go to our website at naceonline.com and register for our enduring activities on PAH or any other program we have developed. Please like us on Facebook at NACME to be part of our online social media community and get access to other content and programs we share. Finally, I'd like to thank you, our audience, for joining us for this podcast. We look forward to having you join us for other upcoming podcasts in the near future.